0: So last week we talked about the atonement and the crucifixion, and this week we're talking more about resurrection and ascension and those pieces of the Christian story. And I just want to say I, I'm grateful for the class, I think it's very useful for us not just to study specific texts, but, but talk about how this whole picture gets put together. So what we're trying to do is kind of give outlines of the whole story of Scripture. And it's really a really good practice for us as believers to kind of look at the whole picture and see how all the parts fit together. So I want to start off with the idea of resurrection and you know, what that teaches us theologically, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And uh, N.T. Wright has a book called The Day the Revolution Began, The Day the Revolution Began. Now here's my question, what is the day that the revolution began? So if you think about revolution in the sense of the spiritual, uh, I guess, highlight of the whole biblical story, here's the day the revolution began. Mark, do you think it's the day Jesus died or the day he was raised? This is a trick question.
1: I don't know if there's a day that the revolution <laughs> began, maybe in a manger. I
0: don't know, but mm. the incarnation. Well, that's not what the book's about. The day the revolution began. <laughs> I know. I know.
1: No, I like what he's doing, but I don't even know. Is does he say it's the uh, the death of Jesus or the resurrection? He probably says resurrection. What
0: do you guys think? resurrection. You know what I know? The right answer. It's the crucifixion.
2: Mm.
0: His book is about the crucifixion as the day the revolution began. So that's the right answer. Uh, <laughs> N.T. Wright, um, and I, it doesn't matter, okay, that's a trick question, it doesn't really matter, I probably, it doesn't matter, but uh, what I, you know, when you think theologically about the story, it's an interesting question, you know, where does God accomplish what the whole story was pointing to, and N.T. Wright says that the the crucifixion was where the powers were defeated. That's where sin was defeated, death was defeated. Resurrection is, is kind of, it goes, it goes along. To me, you know, the kind of, if there was a death and no resurrection, then but of course it couldn't have that. So, so you have to have both a death and a resurrection. And I've heard the illustration of D-Day in World War II as being like the, the day the, the war was won in some ways but the, it wasn't the, f- the final battle of the war. So maybe it's helpful to think along those lines as, as the crucifixion, yes, this is where the battle was won, but there's still things left. And the resurrection is one of those things. That, resurrection was God's way of saying, yes, what Jesus did on the cross was my plan and I've raised him from the dead to kind of rubber stamp or approve uh, what happened there. Um, and so one of the things John Mark says is that the resurrection is important doctrine because it's not just that Jesus was raised, but he's the first fruits of everybody who will be raised. And so there's a sense in which we are raised with Jesus uh, through our faith and what Jesus did on the cross. And um, the Christian belief, and this was, you know, it's life-changing when you start understanding it, is is in resurrection it's not just that we believe that we're going to live after death there's actually going to be a resurrection that means you have to have a body and so we're going to talk i guess a little bit about what that means Um, because our culture culture's view of if you believe in life after death that's generally thought of as your soul living eternally somewhere in the sky probably Um, but that christian doctrine of Of life after death is resurrection, which means a body, some sort of body. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls it a spiritual body, which is an oxymoron the way we think about spirit and body. What is a spiritual body? It's like military intelligence (laughs) or (laughs) jumbo shrimp or something. so it seems like a contradiction in terms, a spiritual body. Uh, and then in Galatians 2.20, I remember this verse because we sang a song in, in my youth. Uh, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, anybody else know this song? Nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live my faith in the song, I do by me and gave myself for me. Those songs are great. I mean, this you know a verse because of that. Uh, But what does that mean? I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, or you could say the faithfulness of the Son of God, uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what does it mean that we live but we don't live? It's Christ who lives. And um, I think that's a Interesting theological question. Because sometimes it feels like I'm still living. And sometimes it feels like Christ isn't really living in me. So how do we handle that? or How are we living and yet Christ is living in us? It's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. What in the world does that mean? Um, I think of C.S. Lewis who commented once that he knows people who are Christians, but their lives are, you know, they're mean. They're, They're... and, and the way he handled that is he thought, well, just think how bad they'd be if they weren't a Christian. <laughs> so maybe that, maybe that's the best we can do. Sometimes is you know just think how what Mark would be like if he wasn't a Christian,
2: because <laughs> he's, a, <laughs> uh,
0: or me, you know, what, what kind of people would we be? So it, there's somehow it's you know we're still trying to to live this out, and we're not perfect. But there's a sense in which we're called to live the way Christ would live doing whatever we're doing, um, which is an interesting call calling. So uh, since we are raised with Christ, um, John Mark says on page 163 that we no longer fear death. Um, he says, we hate death because it defaces God's creation, but we're not afraid of death. And that's, that's why I want to talk to people who are older than I am, although the older I get, the more I think about death. Uh, you tend not to think about it as much the younger you are. But uh, I remember early on in this class when we talked about the Garden of Eden and how God created us in His image, and I asked Lauren the question of, you know, were we created to be immortal? Um, or, you know, how was death part of the plan from the beginning, or was it only coming because of sin? And I don't remember exactly all of her answer. I remember it wasn't a straight yes or no, as as you might expect, Um, and probably wisely so, but it was something along the lines of there may have been death even prior to sin, but now that sin is in the world, death has a sting, or death has a, a greater power. So, I don't know what it would have looked like if there had not been a fall. What, you know, maybe, I have no idea uh, how to think about that. But she said something along the lines of now that sin has been added in, death has a sting. And this, you know, the sting of death is talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 55 to 56. Um, sometimes in my gospel class at Lipscomb, I ask students to try to rank, you know, who, or what, what's the best miracle? Of Jesus, you know, it's just kind of a fun discussion. What, what do you think is the best? Um, what do you think What would be the best? It would have to be Lazarus.
2: Yeah, that's what I was
0: saying. See, my students don't don't get there that fast. You guys are better students. They uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking water to wine myself, but uh,
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the amazing thing about that Lazarus story is it's only in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. How do you? What editing process do you say? I'm not going to include that. in my <laughs> And that's when you think about the Gospels that we have. I mean, it's so interesting to think, why do they include this story and not this one? And what, what's going on here? Uh, but part of that Lazarus story is Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never die. What in the world? If you believe in me, you will never die because we all still die. So what does it mean to say you will never die? Well, spiritually... You'll never die. I mean, did Lazarus have to die again after he had been raised? But somehow that story points to some spiritual resurrection, and and that is the Christian belief that we will never die. Unfortunately, we can't verify that on this side. Uh, I do know some scholars who take very seriously the near-death experience Phenomenon, um, and I was talking with somebody about that, and they they mentioned there are also near death experiences where the people go to hell, although most of those you know you have this vision of you with heaven. So maybe I don't know. We can open that up for your own. If we have some <laughs> testimonies in the room or something, uh, what you think about that? But so um, I think it's still a scary prospect to die because of this. Defacing of the creation, that we sense that that's, you know, it's sad, there's loss, but Christianity does give us a hope beyond death itself. Um, But it just has what is called eschatological verification, meaning we just have to die and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm frustrated by that. Um, uh, What do you guys think? Is that any, is that? for any questions or ideas, testimonies.
3: What about when people are cremated and you talk about there has to be a body to that's a Yeah. Yeah, you know, we went to uh, Trinidad and with the, uh, a lot of the people there are from India, and yeah. we were touring Trinidad and they had they had a cremation going outside, you put a body on uh, wood
4: and Yeah.
3: And, and people. What I what I see is you have a an oppressed class of people, Jews, in the Roman Empire, who were under occupation by Roman rule, and anytime anybody challenges a har- a imperial government, they're going to get killed. Uh huh. Historically, you see this man named Jesus challenging the most powerful government uh-huh. in the world at the time. And they were the most powerful government in the world. At the time they controlled like one third of the earth's wealth. And you get this man of peasants, so to speak, led by a rabbi named Jesus. And he challenged yeah. And he's put to death, and hung on the cross as an example to say nobody else should try this.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And the fact that God got him up to me says that the lesson here is that you're going to do right, and you're going to face
0: possible
3: execution, mm-hmm. but God's going to get
0: you up. Yeah. And
3: that's and that's that's the lesson I get.
0: Yeah, that's the power of it, and that's what I think historically. Yeah,
3: I don't have it, a physical body. I I don't. It's it's not it's not scientifically possible. Yeah. I I think it, it, in First Corinthians chapter fifteen it says when the incorruptible when the corruptible puts up. Yeah. Yeah. So this corruptible body will put up incorruptible. Yeah. There is a spirit. A soul. The religion, yeah. And it will resurrect. Not a
0: body. I think it. Yeah. It's a spiritual body, and it, it, there's a lot we don't know about that. Uh, I think there's some continuity. You know, if you think about the resurrection of Jesus. You know, it, he had a body, um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a few few minutes. But uh, but it, it doesn't seem to be a normal. So there's something about our bodies that gets recreated or reconstituted. And I would say, you know, no matter how you die, God is able to reconstitute a body. Um, so well, I'm not too worried about that. This, but, you know,
3: I've, I've seen ancestors in my dreams, and they have spoken to me. <laughs> And maybe some of other people in here may have had this experience. And what they have said to me turns out to be true. And people to, to avoid, I, I kid you not. Mm. And uh, uh, I don't think it, it, that's, that, that was hallucination. I've, I've, I've had dreams like that. Yeah. Elizabeth Cooper Ross is, is, is the most authoritative person that spoke about life after death. Yeah. The other side.
0: Yeah. Was more or
2: less. So yeah. So truth is stranger
0: than fiction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael are you gonna make a comment? Um
2: so there's a lot of thought in early Christian um early Christians about like how resurrection is gonna work. And they were very concerned about the material continuity. And so it led to really humorous things sometimes. They would think about like what happens if um someone a missionary is eaten by a cannibal and then they can't and like their body, you know, goes into oh. the cannibal's body and then the cannibal has a baby and the baby is converted and then like at the <laughs> resurrection whose body get, goes where? Like, who, you know,
0: who who discussed this? Where is this discussed? <laughs> it's, it's
2: all
3: in this like are we talking
0: to like Third, fourth century, or sixth century. <laughs> the
2: cannibal concern was a little bit later, but, <laughs> but the um, but in the third, yeah. in the fourth century, I mean, they did a lot of thinking about what happens to um, people who are cremated, who die at sea, and they they knew enough science to think about like, well, burning is not destruction; it actually just transforms bodies into particles. Those particles are dispersed through the environment. Right. Um and so they thought about how god could go through and reconstitute all of those particles to bring them back and you know of course ultimately they conclude that well anything that's missing god can like make you know, yeah, like, yeah. can fill in the gaps <laughs> but you know it's like they took it yeah really yeah seriously. And, you know,
0: i love just invoking the mir- you know it's a miracle so let's yeah, yeah. not try to <laughs> figure it out yeah
3: I have the, uh, I have heard this, and I think I believe this: that God placed it in the hearts of His creation to understand the idea of eternal life.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And you know, you hear about Hindus who come back as cows and reincarnation, and some people just say it's over over when you die, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But in your mind, whether you even are a believer or not? Mm-hmm. The thought of death being the end of everything is not as uh, desirable yeah. as the thought of living, even though you die. Yeah, and that's before you hear the story of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I think that that has been placed in our heart.
0: That's good. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, Lauren. I um, we went and
4: visited someone who was dying. over before us, but we'll cross over too, and so you're just ahead of us. And I, you know, expected that to comfort him somehow. <laughs> and he said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, but I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of all the suffering that will accompany this kind of death. Mm-hmm. And I was so humble mm-hmm. to think, oh yeah, we, you know, I can say words of wisdom, Yeah. Death, and Jesus did. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that in there, because so yeah. I'm more afraid of. Yeah. If I, if I die in my sleep, is not as at a, a certain age, then I, maybe I'm not that afraid of that yeah. kind of
0: death. Yeah. That's right. I think it's the whole suffering before, that, that is problematic. The belief in resurrection I think through Christian history has been what has given Christianity um, a power as was said before you know it gives, it gives you the opportunity to take risks for what's right because you're not you know and that's in Christian history They're, the martyrs you know they weren't afraid to stand up for what they thought was right because they knew that there's something bigger than just death um, so that that is a powerful part of a Christian story. Um, I want to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then um, and talk about how receiving the Spirit is, is part of the story as, as why we are raised with Christ, is that we have the power of the Spirit living in us, and that's kind of the, the mechanism by which we are able to live the life that God has called us to live. Uh, So at the beginning of Acts he says, you know, my former book I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So we got 40 days of Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God, and Jesus, I assume, was a, a good teacher, okay? Uh, he's he's a good teacher, and he's resurrected, and he's giving them this information. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, and that's super surprising to me that in his resurrected body, Jesus was eating with them. Um, I have a lot of questions about <laughs> I like eating. I think eating is kind of part of... You know I live to eat for sure. Don't eat to live. I live to eat. But and, and I guess I'm I think eating's going to be part of what we do in the new heaven and earth. I guess that's I mean Jesus is eating. I don't, I don't know if you get hungry or maybe I don't know I eat when I'm not hungry. Maybe it's like <laughs> just something something good that we're our bodies are created to do. Um. He was eating with them, and he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, a lot of teachers will say, you know, there's no such thing as a bad question, so please ask you. I'm like, this sounds like a bad question. I mean, that's the way I was uh, taught to read this question. It's like, stupid disciples... Okay, so you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel now, right? And they're like, Jesus like, oh, yes. When I can I get this out of your head that it's not about Israel? Uh, but how does Jesus answer this question? And it, it's not a yes or no. It's frustratingly not yes or no. Uh, so maybe it's a little bit of both. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So you can't know the time. Well, the question still remains, is it for Israel? (laughs) Is it going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, Is that a yes? So some people say, some interpreters think it's a yes. Um, There is a place for Israel. It's just that we don't know when that's going to happen, but it will happen at a later time. But he goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the way that goes through the book of Acts, it's unclear where the ends of the earth, where, what's that referring to? I think it may be Rome uh, because that's where Acts ends with Paul in Rome under the nose of Nero preaching the gospel. Um, so we have the gospel of King Jesus under the the nose of the king Nero, and now the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. And the thing is now we have Gentiles and Jews in the same body. So to me the answer to are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel is a yes, but, yes, but Israel is going to be constituted with Gentiles as well. So it's not just now ethnic Israel, it's Jew and Gentile together. So to me it's a good question that they're asking because in their mind you know, there's prophecies about the Spirit being poured out uh, in Jerusalem, uh, all the nations gathering in, in Jerusalem, and so we have in Acts 2 people from, they're all Jews, but they're from all the nations um, that, that are listed. So the Jews are restored, Israel is restored through the pouring out of the Spirit and then they eventually learn that Gentiles can also receive the Spirit. Cornelius receives it. Um, you know, it, it takes a struggle, you know, the Samaritans receive it, uh, but they eventually learn that Gentiles and Jews are together in the new Israel, uh, which is restored. So I think the the question is a yes. Some people point to the day of Pentecost then as the birthday of the church. Um, I, I, This was, I did some work on this, and I I don't like the language of it as being the birthday of the church because I think, I want to say something began there, but the church idea goes prior to that. And I want to include Jesus' ministry as part of the kingdom, and even the Old Testament as part of building the kingdom as well. So I, I use the language of it's a new chapter a start of a new chapter in the same story. So too often as Christians we read, and and the the church I was raised in, you know, Acts 2 Day of Pentecost was the, you know, it's like, that's, the we don't, I I remember some people said we don't have the New Testament until Acts 2, it's really, that's where the New Testament should start. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, well what about Jesus and the Gospels and, you know, so. I want to give those some emphasis as well. So I like to just say it's a new chapter. And I know that, you know, Cornelius says, or Peter says about Cornelius that the Spirit fell on them on just as it fell on us at the beginning. But to me, that's not the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of a new chapter in the story that leads to the church. A little detailed, but and I could be wrong. Okay, last thing I want to say and then turn it over to Mark is... Um, I want to make a case for Sunday communion Uh, but I don't want to make it on a patternist hermeneutic I want to make it on more of Sunday as resurrection day so you know first day of the week why did the why did the Jewish believers in Christ they, they may have still kept Sabbath on Saturday but there's some early evidence that they they also met on Sunday the first day of the week not as much evidence as I would like and there's no command hey meet on Sunday so this is all just practice, and the, the church has practiced, I assume, from, you know, I don't know a lot about the year 101 A.D. I just know the Bible, right, just the New Testament. But uh, I think the practice was early on to meet on Sundays as a day of worship, and it makes sense to me that that's because of the resurrection. of That's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. So we moved from Sabbath worship to first day of the week worship, and so there's something about Resurrection Day every Sunday and then combining that, that communion um, in which we proclaim the Lord's death on the day that the Lord raised from the dead. So we get both death and resurrection symbolized together. So I think, um, I know in, in some parts of my family, uh, if you were to take communion on any other day, it would have been like, No, that's not the pattern. That's not, you know, you don't have authority to do that. Um, All those arguments. And so there's a part of me that's like, oh, I'm going to take communion any day I want. Uh, You know, my rebellion is to take communion on the day. (laughs) I wish that was the only way I rebel. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, But as I think about it now, I think, well, maybe, not that we shouldn't, not that you can't, but there's something about taking it on Sunday that combines the death and resurrection story symbolically together, that makes it the day where we should do it. That's my case, what do you think? Yeah.
5: We grew up, he grew up Catholic, so there's that. And then I grew up where we did it once every three months. Or something. Yeah, right, yeah. I think Jesus, when he institutes it, says to do it often. He doesn't ever say do it on Sunday.
0: As often as you take this, as as do this often remembrance as me. He didn't
5: say, just take it on Sundays. Did he? he didn't say that. No. Right. And if people are sick in the hospital, people take it to them. I mean, so in, in, are you telling me, like, in Church of Christ, if someone's
0: sick in the hospital, it can only be given on Sunday? Amen. Um.
4: <laughs> See, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I not know.
0: Well,
5: it's not true. Oh, well,
0: well, it's not true. He's kidding with me. Well, no, what I'm, that, that is the church I was raised in. That's the
3: tradition. Traditions. But not
2: now.
0: It's, well, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. That's not what I'm saying. And, and the way we got in Church of Christ to be so legalistic about only on Sunday and only once, you know, there's a lot of... If you go to first and second service, you take it at the second service. <laughs> but but it was so important that we take it every Sunday that we had used to have this thing called Sunday nights. Uh, and uh, you would, if you miss Sunday morning, you took it Sunday night. If you were providentially injured. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You had to have a good Sorry, excuse for missing. No, no. So it was I. I and but we got there from a very legalistic oh. pattern. We want authority, and the, the example that we have in the New Testament is in, only in Acts 20 on the first day of the week at Troas, that you know, they they gathered to break bread. And I've had discussions about what does it mean to break bread? Does that mean to have a meal, or does it mean just to take the Lord's Supper? And I was told that when it says break bread and eat, it's a meal. When it just says break bread, it means Lord's Supper. <laughs> My mind, I'm like, is that really the detail that we're going into to determine... So all that to say I'm I think I maybe you know I want to make a case for Sunday communion without having the legalism pattern thing but I I just think symbolically and theologically there may be a case to be made
2: But if you were on a cruise And like you forgot to take the
0: Lord's Supper and then you crossed the international day. Well, even in the Troas, we don't know exactly when they took, because they broke bread, they gathered to break bread. Paul preached all the way to midnight. Some dude falls out of the window and dies and gets raised from the dead. So we have death and resurrection in that story on the first day of the week. But then he keeps talking till daylight and it, are we gone, Are we on Jewish time there, where the day starts at night, or is this the Roman time where it starts? I mean, that, all these discussions come into play, and I, I don't know what to do with all that. But yeah, I'm just not. So I'm not doing it legalistically. But even in that story, we have death and resurrection on the first day of the week together in a in a powerful way that symbolizes our story. Yeah. Um, just based on what you
4: said about Resurrection Sunday, do you have any thoughts?
0: On churches who make a point to not celebrate Easter, saying that every
3: Sunday is Resurrection Sunday? I don't think it's a bad
0: thing to celebrate Easter. <laughs> every Sunday is, is, is Resurrection Day. And I don't want to give... I think there's some value in having a liturgical calendar where we put emphasis on certain parts of the story if it doesn't take away from the other Sundays. So I, I do have a little bit of a problem with <laughs> Easter. I'm so Church of Christ. I mean, I just uh, can't get over it. What I hate about it really is that we have to dress up. Uh, and fix it. I mean, I'm like, is this really the story that, that about Easter is that we got to wear Easter clothes now? <laughs> to me, that's, a, that's tragic. Yes? I
4: think uh, the benefit... my work I'm struggling man yeah I'd like my old self wants to rear itself up and I kind of start to forget I think if I went longer than every week I would struggle even more in my personal life keeping God forefront I just think coming together with other Christians and having that time to remember the sacrifice and his sacrifice so much greater than mine is a reminder that I can sacrifice my wants and meet, you know, throughout the week. So yeah. extending that to, you know, once a month, or, that yeah. would not, never work for me. Yeah, Sometimes I like
0: not, uh, I like the weekly part. Make it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mark, I wanna give you a little bit of time if you wanna, we were talking before about the meal of communion, yeah. do you wanna add that in here? Yeah, let me just, let me just,
1: uh, just briefly. Um, They they ate the Lord's Supper uh, at least every Sunday. Um, Pretty sure about that in the early church. But what you have to understand, it was a supper. It wasn't passing trays. They sat around table, and I think they began that meal, probably with the bread, and they ended it. Uh, perhaps with kind of a toast. And uh, they, you know, that was about Jesus, but it was about how Jesus brought them together. It's how new Israel came together. Um, And so I actually would go stronger on Pentecost because it is the day when a group of people, when new Israel came together and the Spirit came upon them. And so that was, in a sense, uh, the beginning of the church as new Israel. But they came together, as far as I can tell, and had a, maybe a banquet around the table. And it was to celebrate we're the it renewed people of God. We're the remnant of Israel who has decided to follow the Messiah. And so that was the time when you got the whole group together for a banquet to celebrate now i I hate to say this but what i was taught to do and pass a tray and i'd get it myself and i'd pass it to the next person like this and then i would eat it and i'd think about the vertical relationship between me and god as i was thinking about jesus on the cross that is so much different than what they did this was a celebratory meal of course you think about what jesus did on the cross but you're thankful about that. And so it is a celebration. It's, it's something mm-hmm. of a banquet where you become family. 10 days from now, we're all gonna be sitting around the Thanksgiving table. And for most of us, who's gonna be around that table? Family. Family. family, all right? And it's kind of where even your family from out of town will come in or you'll go there. And it's kind of when you renew your family ties and you find out what's going on, you know, in your life and what's going on in your life. Uh, And somehow it'll be, you know, can you believe Alabama whipped uh, whoever it was so badly or that Tennessee lost again, (laughs) sorry, that's a sore point. Uh, But it will be about family coming together and hopefully you'll take some of that meal. And I don't know if you want to eat the Lord's Supper there with your own family, but you'll say, We're family even more than our blood relationships. We're family because what Jesus has done for us. Now, that's not the whole church that you go to, and that's physical family, but hopefully it's also more than blood, or it's Jesus' blood family. How do you like that? Um, And so it becomes a sacred meal. And so I'm saying eat the Lord's Supper at least once a week with your whole (laughs) church family, Uh, but uh, because... And if we could do this in a way that it was a meal, we'd all look forward to it so much and we'd get so much out of it. And we would come to know each other so much better rather than looking at the back of each other's head. I think this was the center of what happened in those house churches. But also, they were sitting around a home and it's the same group every Sunday and they really were becoming family. And that's so hard to do in a big church or even in a little church Uh, And so I think we'd be so much better off if we could figure out a way to do that. That's why I like small groups and groups that spend time together. And yes, you wanna study something, but you also want to be family. Uh, I was fortunate when I was doing college ministry at Woodmont Hills. We brought the students in every uh, day during class time. We had tables set up all over this big room and uh, we fed them. And we gave them some questions they could ask and talk about during that. And so they would have the Lord's Supper during that meal. And we had trouble getting rid of them at the end of the hour, because they're sitting around praying and they're talking about this. And it just did something really special for that group. And so, uh, yeah, I think they came together every week and did that. And that was one of the huge differences between Christian worship, and synagogue worship that they had come out of. Uh, So, tell me about that, and then we'll leave. What do we do about that? Yes?
5: You know, thinking about it, um, I do love doing it every Sunday. That's one of the reasons we came here, because I I really was missing that part of it, the communion part. But we've taken something, it feels like we've taken something that was a communal thing into an individual thing. That's right. And I just wish it could be more communal. And I know in my daughter, she goes to a Church of Christ where they, like everybody gets the bread and they all, they don't eat it. And they just, and and then they all do it together. And then they do the same and they have a little like a um, talking in between for each thing. And they all take it together. And when she came here, she was like, oh, you guys do it like this? Like she didn't understand that. So was that ever a practice of doing it? There, I guess there are
4: different ways
1: churches can do that. Yeah, it used to be in Churches of Christ, you'd pass it down the pew, and of course, we still kind of do that. Uh, I think we have to do whatever we can to try to recreate at least that feeling. I wish we had a big table in the yeah, front of our congregations instead of a pulpit. <laughs> you know, or, uh, and round. I would and, have, and have, you know, have the bread up there and the glasses of wine. I don't know if it can be wine. I had Lipscomb students uh, in Austria for a semester once, and we will happen to all be in Florence on a Sunday. So Margo and I went out looking for grape juice I had to give Lipscomb students wine.
5: Huge I problem. I remember going to Ethos
2: 10 years ago yeah. at, when I was at the bar mm-hmm.
0: in downtown, yeah. and they, they would have, you would just gather around the little table, yeah. and it was exactly your- yeah. And you talked there. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Well, I do think, and John Mark has a book called Come to the Table where he talks about this. You know, in the way church history went, um, the Catholic Church has transubstantiation so it's the actual body and blood of Christ. And that makes the dynamic in the room very different. They would never pass it through the aisle. And also it's it's more of recreating the death, actual sacrifice of Jesus again, which gives it more of a funeral yeah. dynamic. And he says there's a, the altar dynamic in the Old Testament was you would make the sacrifice, but then you would have the fellowship Thanksgiving meal. And he thinks it's more of a table than an altar. But I feel like we have gotten in Churches of Christ and maybe other churches too, we still have the funeral mentality even though we don't have the theology, the Catholic theology of transubstantiation. So we've, we're trying to combine a funeral with a table and it's hard, we're just, we don't know how to navigate.
1: Yeah, when the, uh, when the Israelites would sacrifice an animal, I mean you hold that, you know, your hand on the top of that little calf's head, the priest is helping you and take that knife and you just slit his little throat. Uh, y'all know this is where hamburger comes from, right? We do this all the time. But, uh, and it's, it's a sad time. Uh, and it's an expensive time, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but then the priest throws some of the fat up there on the uh, fire and it just gurgles. Uh, smoke, smell, you name it. Um, and then the priest helps butcher it and the priest takes a little bit of the meat. That's one of the ways that priests got their salary since they were paid. And then you take the rest of it home, and you have a banquet, uh, or you you know put it up. You take a lot of it to the market, you know, to sell it because you can't go through that much. But maybe you have a banquet and invite your family and friends over, and that sort of thing. And that's when you celebrate. You know, it's so sad I had to do this to this calf, but look at what we got out of it. You know, uh, purity. Uh, and so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue that we need to use that the Lord's Supper needs to be uh, more of a celebration. I, I think it can change moods from week to week. And then the other big thing that I would say about Lord's Supper is it's always a uh, anticipation of the Messianic feast. Okay, it's always looking forward to what we will be doing together because that's what community is. We go to heaven, which is on earth. And Jesus' favorite picture of that is that we're sitting around the table. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there, right? And over here, leaning up against Abraham, that's Lazarus. Remember? That's, that's where he went. Uh, and then we fill in our places around the Messianic table, and we have the feast with Jesus, with the Messiah's host. So there's a lot going on yeah. in that.
0: John Mark right. uses a phrase, in, as he's talking about that in this around-the-world book, uh, we remember the future, which is, how do we remember the future? But but that's the, the power of communion is it's, we're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. So we're thinking about the future. And that's why Sunday is an important day for us, because it's resurrection and where we're all headed. So remember that. Okay, thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you.